Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. Amy Bach, Executive Director of United Policyholders, and Lisa Hughes, Marshall Fire Survivor and Marshall Fire Local Liaison for United Policyholders, are my guests on this BuildCast. We discuss the impact of fire specifically, but natural disaster and the destruction of home, its impacts on people, and the insurance nightmare that they face. United Policyholders has stepped into this space to advocate for survivors of natural disaster events and specifically help them navigate the insurance maze one has to trek through to recover and become whole again. We need to be prepared and plan ahead as it appears not to be if another natural disaster will hit, but when. In this light, I think everyone should hear what Amy and Lisa have to say. So I thank you for listening. Uh, hi, this is Robbie Schwarz, and I'm here with Amy Bach, Executive Director of United Policyholders, and Lisa Hughes, a Marshall Fire survivor and Marshall Fire local liaison for the United Policyholders. Welcome to the BuildCast. How are you today? Good. Thanks for having us. Great. Great to be on, Robbie. Thank you. And so I wanted to start with Lisa, and uh, we're we're going to be focusing our discussion around the Marshall Fire. Uh, and United Policyholders, obviously. Uh, but I was curious, Lisa, was fire even in your consciousness uh, before the Marshall Fire? Oh, that's a good question. Um, not really, no. I mean, we had had fires in Colorado, but not near me. Um, I mean, it was a little bit in my consciousness because I own property in Grand County, um, which was on pre-evacuation in the East Troublesome Fire back in, what was that, 2020? Um, so, I mean, kind of, but no, not really. I mean, not in my suburban little town, so. Yeah, well, that that's an interesting thing because I, I'm also uh, the new homes building advisor for the East Troublesome Fire. And that location really is uh, is more what we think about as wildfire territory. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that fire wasn't really in your consciousness uh, in uh, Boulder County there uh, on the plains, but it seems like um, it's becoming uh, better known, I guess, that fire can really happen in, in those locations as well. Uh, anyway, um, so can you describe the, the day and the Marshall Fire event and, and from your experience going through it? Yeah, and I want to preface this by saying that I was not actually home. I was traveling back to my house on the day of the fire, so it may not be quite as exciting of a story as someone who was actually there. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we were actually up in the mountains at my place in Grand County um, with our family because it was the holidays, if you remember that. Yeah. Um, and so everybody knew it was going to be windy and winds aren't that uncommon here as you know like 50 60 70 mile an hour winds 
Um, so my next door neighbor was watching my house and she texted me about mm, 12, 1230 and said, oh, you know, it's trash day. All the trash cans are blowing down the street. We're on the cul-de-sac laughing, you know, putting them away and stuff like that. So about that time, I actually left to come back to Louisville with my daughter, one of my daughters and my dog. And the rest of my family was still up in Grand County. Um, and we were actually coming down I-70. And of course, that's like the one day I didn't have my phone plugged in, you know, like to get texts <laughs> in the car. Wow. Um, and we were coming down I-70 and all of a sudden I started getting one call after another from my neighbors. Um, and they said, you know, there's a fire in Spanish Hills and there's another fire and we see, we're starting to see flames basically. And I was like, okay, that was quick. Cause literally 45 minutes before they were like all laughing in the cul-de-sac. Um, and they were like, you know, don't come back. We're probably all leaving. Right. So they would call one would call. I would hang up. The next one called, I would hang up the next one called. Meanwhile, my teenage daughter, who was, what was she 18 at the time was in the back of the car, Googling, you know, the fire and discovered that superior had gone on to evacuation, um, wow. while we were coming down the mountain. Um, so my next door neighbor who was watching my house also called me and she's like, you know, we see flames behind the police station, which is essentially across a major street from my house. Um, so she's like, we're leaving, we're going to our daughter's house. You can come there if you need to anyway. So, but all of the neighbors basically said, don't come back. We're leaving. Um, this was one something. I don't know, 105, 110. So anyway, to make a long story short, I ended up going to my mother-in-law's in Denver. Meanwhile, I'm on the phone with my husband telling him everything that's happening. And I had to pull over in, I think it was Idaho Springs <laughs> and call you know, my husband and be like, this is what's going on. And he was watching the news and by that point, and they were still up in the mountains. So we went to Denver and then they came back the next day, um, the rest of, my family um yeah. and basically my husband by that point we essentially knew our house had burned down our entire neighborhood burned um so he basically grabbed everything he could think of that we had up there in at our place in the mountains um that we might need and shoved it into you know stuff we had brought with us um and then came back but we literally had just the clothes we had brought for you know three or four days to be up there you know, on a vacation <laughs> um, yeah. with us when we left. So we didn't have our computer, you know, we weren't home to get anything out, which several of my neighbors were. I mean, luckily we did have our dog with us because I did have neighbors that lost animals. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, even my neighbors who were there had minimal time to get out. And, you know, later they were all laughing like about, I mean, in an ironic way, like this yeah. is what I brought with me. Like, I brought my computer, but I didn't bring my charger, you know, mm -hmm. or something like that. Or, you know, my one neighbor went out in like shorts and a t-shirt and he's like, oh, I'll be back. You know, I don't need to bring my winter coat. And then yeah. if you remember, there was a blizzard the next day. Yes. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. So anyway, so I wasn't actually there, but um, that was what happened. Yeah. So. I guess the the day after the fire, you're starting to realize uh, what happened. What what kind of process did you go through um, 
I, I guess not to come to terms with with the fire, but uh, to 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 figure out a pathway forward. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, well, I mean, I, you know, we were in shock just like everybody else. And, you know, we weren't convinced until that day, really, that our whole neighborhood had actually burned down. And we had a neighbor um, sneak back in and look at the, at the damage. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, we just basically, we said, well, we got to call our insurance company you know, and that was one of the first things we did. And they gave us an advance. Of course, you know, it was the weekend. So yeah. if you remember that, so no one was working. <laughs> so we had like a temporary adjuster who gave us some money and um, we went shopping for some clothes. And, you know, my daughter was going back to college two weeks later. So we had to like rally the troops a lot of our friends, we just started posting on Facebook stuff we needed. Um, and a lot of our friends came through with like, we needed a suitcase for her to get back to college, um, et cetera. So, um, I mean, I think, you know, we were definitely in shock, but we were also like, oh, we, we you know, we got to figure this out, at least the insurance part. So we contacted our insurance. Um, we were staying down in Denver with my fam my husband's family at that point. So, I don't remember really what we did. I mean, we couldn't get back in yeah. to the neighborhood. Everything was blocked off. So even if we had wanted to come back, we couldn't have. Um, I can't remember. So the words. Really, the kind of the, the first life move, I guess, it was contacting insurance. And yeah, well, first find yeah insurance. And then we started working on finding housing, too, right away. And they yeah. said, you know, we can put you in a hotel and yada, yada. So we did end up going to a hotel for a couple nights, which was not a good experience with a dog. Yeah. <laughs> and so then we ended up at a friend's house who was gone for two weeks. Um, we stayed at their house and then we ended up moving into our rental for a little yeah. while. Was it difficult to find rental housing? Um, yes. Because of the number of people. Yeah. Yes. Because as you know, we already had a housing crisis here like not enough housing basically and super high rents and all that stuff and then you add a thousand people or more into that you know in boulder county which is already popular so yeah. i mean kind of we lucked out we found something on craigslist and we really needed a yard because we have a dog right yeah. so that was an, who was one one year old at the time <laughs> so a puppy basically so that yeah. was a little bit more of a challenge too we couldn't really do you know an apartment with a 30 pound dog so yeah um, we managed to find, yeah, a house in Longmont. Um, so. Okay. So, um, when when were you able to have a uh, a defined and kind of uh, first real conversation with your insurance company? Um, hmm. After you know, I the the day afterwards, they're they're just kind of I think just throwing stuff and kind of getting you settled. Uh, yeah, there. I think then, it was then you have to have a real conversation about what yeah. what happens next. It was probably a few days later because, you know, remember this happened on December 30th. So the next day was New Year's Eve and the next day was yeah. New Year's Day. So every, like I said, everything was closed. So yeah. it was probably that following, you know, Monday or Tuesday when we got an adjuster, I guess, assigned and, you know, started talking to them. My husband, honestly, has been doing most of the work dealing with the insurance company. <laughs> um, I mean, I have talked to them, but he really, you know, sort of took that on as his role. Um, so, but we finally got an adjuster assigned and we did start having a conversation. And I, as I remember correctly, 
my husband, you know, had a conversation that was quite lengthy, more, more than one lengthy conversation with them about everything. So, yeah. Uh, at some point, did, did you come to a realization that uh, insurance wasn't what you thought it was? Yes, we did. Um, what led to that? I, well, if I remember correctly, it was, uh, well, I should say in terms of UP, so my husband was the one who went to the Disaster Assistance Center first before me, stopped by the UP table, <laughs> um, got the yellow book that we give out and some other information. And, you know, one of the things it says is get a certified copy of your policy. So we did that and that took a while longer than it's supposed to, but we did get it. and. You know, we reviewed it. We had a conversation with our agent and stuff. And I mean, just based on, and at that time, we didn't know as much as we know now, but based on just with the last house that had sold in our neighborhood prior to the fire, which was about six months, uh, no, four months before the fire, four or five months before there, we figured we were probably underinsured. So, so um, you first learned about uh, UP or United Policyholders at a disaster recovery event? Uh, at the disaster assistance center that the county stood up after the fire. Okay. Yeah. And uh -huh. then um, how how did you become uh, uh, an employee, I guess, or the liaison uh, uh, for the Marshall Fire with uh, United Policyholders? Yeah. Well, we had, I had, I mean, so after the fire, I think we had signed up and got on their mailing list and or you know email list. So we had started, using some of their services, like listening to the webinars and that type of stuff. So we knew a little bit already. Um, and then we have sort of a survivor groups, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And um, another, another person who lives over in unincorporated Boulder County had, I think, gotten the job description or something from another UP staff person. Um, and was kind of floating it around and originally i was like i don't know it seems like a lot like i don't know if i want to do this and stuff but i was trying to extricate myself at the same time from my previous job um and so then this same person over from ubc floated it around again and by that time i knew her a little bit better and she was like lisa i think you should apply for this like you know it's part time yada yada so that's what I did. And then I had a meeting with Amy and Val. Um, and that was kind of that. And I, well, I should preface this by saying I had also been doing stuff in the community prior to the fire. I mean, prior to working for UP. So I was a neighborhood liaison for my neighborhood already. So I was like in meetings with the city and other things prior to doing that. So some of it was kind of a natural segue. Yeah, you know, from yeah. what I was already doing as a citizen, if you want to put it that way. Um, so perfect. Um, maybe we'll we'll transition to Amy here. Um, Amy, thanks for joining us again. Um, but can you describe uh, United Policyholders and what uh, kind of your mission is and how you how you get involved in uh, disaster recovery? Sure. Um, so uh, United Policyholders, as you've heard from Lisa, um, has a program called the Roadmap to Recovery. Um, and that is one of our three programs. Uh, we also have a Roadmap to Preparedness and an Advocacy in Action program. 
Um, and then within each of those programs, we have different initiatives. Um, I would say, first of all, at the heart, UP is about <clears throat> problem solving and helping make insurance work for people. Um, you know, so, so, you know, we started, um, I had been a consumer advocate starting in, in the 1980s. And when I saw how insurance companies basically would go into the legislature in New York where I was working and write their own ticket, meaning they would tell the lawmakers, this is what I want, we want you to do. Um, and they were uh, lobbying in, in the 80s to make it harder for people to sue them, saying, oh, we're getting hit with all these frivolous lawsuits. And I was um, fresh out, um, a couple of years out of, of college, but I was working for a consumer protection agency. And I was asked to participate in a lot of the negotiations over whether their proposed limits on people's ability to sue their insurance companies was a good idea. And I was shocked by how um, how imbalanced it, the 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 landscape was. The fact that that the lawmakers really were only hearing from insurance lobbyists. They there was maybe one guy you know representing the trial lawyers that was there, but you know the insurers had their fancy booklets and their you know color color you know brochures and you know making their case and arguing their numbers and they were out in force. And the legislators were overwhelmed by them and, you know, apt to do whatever the insurers wanted. And I thought this is not a healthy system because, you know, people have to buy insurance they have to, to buy a home. They have to buy insurance to drive a car. You have a captive customer base. There needs to be more balance in the system where the policyholders need to have a voice and they need to when decisions are being made that are going to affect them. Right. So I yeah. had seen that early on. Then I had to get a law degree because you have to have, you have to be able to speak legalese, you know, insurance policies are sold as warm and fuzzy blankets, uh, security yeah. blankets, but they're really hard, cold contracts written by lawyers and they rewrite them every time they lose a court case and they tighten it up with the exclusions and make it even more complicated. I, um, and so, um, so then I, I, you know, for a while there uh, in California, so, so when I got out of law school, California had passed a landmark insurance regulatory um, ballot measure called Prop 103. So I went and worked for the folks that were, um, that were implementing that. And there were some rebates to people and some other things. And then I, then I started to, I, I started to do a little bit of private practice representing people whose insurance company had denied their claim and then fighting on their behalf to get a fair outcome. And, and um, I wasn't really that into the, the litigation world. And right, um, but I, while I was working, we had the Loma Prieta earthquake in California in 89. And in the aftermath of that, of that earthquake, a whistleblower came to my law office um, who had been a State Farm loyalist. You know, State Farm is one of these companies where they actually have a slogan, State Farm first, then God, then country, in that order. Wow. And she had been a loyalist her whole career, you know, 20 years. She had been an agent. She had been a claim adjuster. And she got her consciousness raised by a contractor in the, in the, in the Santa Cruz Mountains saying that the insurers were not properly adjusting people's claims. And she tried to fix it. She... Um, she at that time was running a team of adjusters and she um, felt like she realized that 
they really, State Farm wasn't giving them the tools, physical tools, like they didn't have levels and they didn't have um, training to, under, to, to distinguish between cosmetic damage, right? Slap mm -hmm. a coat of paint on it. Yeah versus structural, where it's much more expensive. And because of that, of course, a lot of the adjusters were only finding cosmetic damage and they were missing a lot of the more serious, dangerous damage to these homes. And she felt that people were being put in harm's way by being told by an adjuster, your place is fine and habitable, which this, this, I see Lisa's, you know, this resonates with people who've had yeah. partial, it's very similar, right? Where the, where the insurers, they don't train their people adequately and or they make them feel more more uh, professionally qualified to make determinations about whether or not a home is habitable than they really than they really um, are entitled to make. They don't have that industrial hygienist, you know, qualification to say, yes, it's a safe yes. home. Similar yeah. with the okay. So she tried to make a training tape for her team and she went out and bought them all marbles so that they could put a marble on the floor and if it you know rolled and they could see that that you know that, that basic right so state farm confiscated her training tape and um they parted ways uh she had come to my law firm and my boss w w at the said this could you deal with this woman so i thought she was fascinating because, you know, I'm a, you know, been a lifelong Democrat and I'm, you know, progressive, lefty. And here's this woman who's been a lifelong insurance professional who was a Republican. And we were both kind of saying the same thing, which is that it doesn't matter. This is not about politics. This is about fairness. And this is about people's emotional and economic health. Um, and this is about really being, having insurance do what, insurers say it's going to do which is put you back where you were before a loss right yeah. so so we decided to form um a nonprofit. we had just picked the name we had a little working group we had like a financial planner and a insurance agent um and then suddenly the oakland berkeley firestorm hit in 91 and we jumped into action and we started building the roadmap to recovery program so starting in the aftermath of that fire i mean i think we had, I remember setting up our first meeting in a senior center in Berkeley, like a couple weeks after the fire. And, you know, the, the program that we built starting then is very similar to what we have today. It's just a lot more robust. So for example, yeah. um, at that time, you know, we, um, we recognized that it was very important that wildfire impacted households have a safe place to get information because you know, people in like in Lisa's position, um, they're a they're they're raw, they're overwhelmed, they're extremely uh, displaced and disoriented, right? Their whole everything mm -hmm. is completely. There's something like fundamentally unsettling about having your home be incinerated, right? And and yeah. and and it's very very deep. It's very much like a death in the family for a lot of people, and it's very overwhelming. And then the financial stress, um, you know, starts to get kind of commingled with the with just the just the the, the trauma, um, yeah. you know, the, the 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 emotional trauma, the family trauma. You heard about, you know, Lisa saying some people lose pets, but I mean, you know, we we say, oh, you know, and stuff is stuff, but it turn you know, it turns out right that you know, a lot of our identity and a lot of our, our feelings of stability in the world are tied to 
um, landmarks in our life. You know, when our kids graduated and the pictures and the, you know, when, when, when you know, for people who, you know, have grandchildren, when, the, you know, the pictures where their grandchildren were born or whatever, these things, you know, the trophies that you won, the, 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 you know, the jewelry you inherited, the, the things that, those things actually losing those things is really hard, really hard. And then on top of that, the insurance process can be yeah. absolutely brutal. So from the beginning, <laughs> we were determined to try to make it easier for people. We were determined to say, okay, people like Lisa, you know, they get inundated with offers of help, right? Some of it is from the government. Some of it is from professionals. Some of it is from lawyers. Some of it is from public adjusters. Some of it is from other charities. Some of it is from people who've already, you know, been there, done that and want to help. So it's often very hard for a fire survivor to know who they can trust and what guidance to follow. Because, I mean, like perfect example right now in Maui, I mean, awful beyond awful, right? But, but everybody i mean it's amazing how i think because a lot of people have a connection heart connection to maui everyone's coming out and wanting to offer to help right and you know so here we are here's up you know we strive to make things simple right to demystify to try to use as clear simple layperson language as we can um to explain how the insurance process should work what your rights are and how to overcome obstacles, how to try to avoid them and how to basically make your insurance work for you. So, so all the advocacy stuff, that's a whole nother ball of wax in terms of, you know, um, why do insurers get to make this so complicated? Why do they get to force people to inventory the contents of their damn, you know, medicine cabinets? Why do they put them, why do they do this depreciation and hold back and, you know, make it so complicated and make people submit receipts? Because on a total loss claim, you've lost everything, right? So arguably, they should just pay the policy limits in all the categories, end of story, right? But because of that power dynamic that I was mentioning from way, way back, that doesn't happen. And so over the years, UP has done this combination of consumer education support on the ground in these areas. You know, we just like we did after the Oakland fire, we teach classes, we hold meetings, we organize people into groups. Everybody who's insured with State Farm, you guys talk to each other. Everybody who's insured with farmers, you, you talk to each other. At different points, we've done different experiments to try to facilitate those groups. Um, you know, and COVID kind of blew everything up a, a little bit now. A lot of stuff is online. But we've done that. We so education. So you asked, you know, about our mission, right? Yeah. Our tagline is empowering the insured. Um, and and our basic our basic approach is to be that trustworthy source that people know they can rely on. That we're not gonna we're not gonna send them down a a rabbit hole. We're not gonna try to get them to hire us. We're not gonna. Um, I, we try very hard not to. Um, represent ourselves as having a magic wand. You know, we acknowledge that there's not one right path for everybody. So we try not to say, you must do this, you must do that. We try to say, here's the lay of the land and these are the options. And depending on your situation, you know, some people don't want to rebuild. So we have, you know, all kinds of material on what do you, if you just want to buy a replacement home, then these, this is how it can work. Some people, um, you know, some people want 
to do everything themselves, okay. Some people say, I can't deal. Um, I want to hire a public adjuster. Okay. Then we say, well, if you are going to do that, here are the criteria you should be looking for, you know, license and reputation and references. Some people say, I'm so mad, I'm underinsured, and my insurance company won't make it right. It's not my fault. They, my agent told me I was fine. I'm not fine. You know, we, we have a whole library of strategies to try to get a remedy if you're underinsured on your own. And if that doesn't work, what kind of a of a lawyer you would want to talk to and again we're because we're so deep in the ecosystem we really do know the lay of the land i mean we 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 don't like i said we don't have a magic wand but you know we have you know some public adjusters that over the years we have felt are very are you know do a good job for people um and so they're in our directory, you know, and we have, or they will, we will use them sometimes to help out on one of our Q&A webinars. Same thing with lawyers, same thing with government agencies. So we, we are, you know, we literally talk about a roadmap, meaning insurance is a vehicle to get you back where you were before the loss, but it's not going to drive itself. So yeah. of all of our messages, I think one of the two, two of the most important are, be realistic about what this is. Ads are ads. This is think of this as a business negotiation. Be organized. Keep a journal, right? And learn your rights and and learn how to be an effective communicator and learn how to get help when you need it. Yeah. Wow. That was a lot <laughs> to to digest there. Um, are when do you think people are receptive to uh, communication from United policyholders? Is, it, yeah, I mean, months afterwards or right. What what we have found over the years is one of the most important things is for us to be there right at the beginning at if, if it's a federally declared disaster, they call it a DRC disaster recovery center. If it's just if it's just doesn't get that presidential declaration, if it's not, um, it, then it's a then it's a local assistance center. So but having a table at one of those places um, is critical because that's where people um, often, you know, I sort of, I often equate, I was just talking to um, another staff person, the Annie Barber that we have that's on the ground now in Maui. I was talking to her yesterday, just trying to, you know, we're, it's, it's a little overwhelming to be there and talking about how um, the, there's something about a survivor, a Lisa, an Annie, a Karen Remus, people who become, who have be, or are part of United Policyholders, there's something that no other, it's it, no, anyone, that no one who hasn't gone through this can quite, quite, it, there's a level of comfort that even I, I've been doing this for, you know, forever, it feels like, um, but I didn't myself lose a home. So I can talk, um, but, but, but in terms of, of the comfort that, that we can bring people in the beginning, which is so important, you know, to help people get to where they can actually make good decisions. Um, a lot of that is just this emotional, oh, here's a person who actually went through this and is and is is right here in front of me. She's still standing. It didn't knock her down, right? Yeah. There, that is invaluable. So that first, the first month is critical for us. And it's hard. Um, it's hard, Robbie, because right now, there are public adjusters who've flown over to Maui. There are lawyers who've flown over, just like Marshall. People flood in, and it's very hard for survivors to know 
who's really on my side? Um, and so for us, those first months are critical. We do long-term recovery, right? We'll stick around, right? We're doing, we're just kind of getting started if, for Hurricane Ian in Florida because it took us a while to get funded. But I mean, um, and people still need lots of help. I mean, listen, Lisa, yeah. Lisa's crew is about to approach their second anniversary and lots of people there still need lots of help. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're we're seeing um, in my role as the new homes building advisor, um, we're seeing about half the people have started the process and about half haven't even started the process yet. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Uh, so there's, there's a, no a long way to go. Yeah. I think there's a lot of reasons for that, though. I mean, yeah, about why that is, how that is. So. Yeah. Um, so United Policyholders is looking at all disaster, really, any any time. Is it is it really just focused on the insurance side of the equation, uh, trying to to make people whole again economically? Yeah. No. As a matter of fact, it's very interesting. Like. I'm kind of, you know, a little bit of a geek, right? I, I know about insurance and, you know, I'm this weird consumer. There's not a lot of us, right, that know. But so I think, you know, over the years that I've been running it, because I, that whistleblower that I talked about who helped me form it bailed out about five years in, I think. So I've been kind of pushing the boulder up the hill now for, you know, a long time. And I, um, uh, you know, the... Um, I was always focused on the insurance angle because that's where you get the money, right? That's where you get the money to, to get back on your feet. And also because people are, they rely heavily on their insurance adjuster. Yeah. You know, they think this, I, this person's going to lead me through this person's going to get me through this, right? It's a legit mindset. Yeah. That's really yeah. what the ads tell you. And because that's often not the case. In fact, nowadays it's less true than it ever has been in terms of whether or not you can rely on the insurance company's adjuster to to get you through right so over the years our program has really um it's really morphed to include emotional support um financial decision making guidance right do I take out a loan? Do I do, do do I do an SBA loan? Do I do a commercial loan? Do um uh do I pay off my mortgage? Do I do I apply for forbearance? Um so it's emotional, financial decision making, insurance and replacing your your stuff. So so we focus on um you know inventory valuation and uh and then ultimately getting back into a home. Yeah. Lisa, but I was going to say, yeah, I was just going to say, it's also the preparedness piece, which I was talking to you about before Amy came on, which is like, now that we have to go out and buy homeowners insurance again, you know, we know what to look for. Like, are you adequately covered? Are you going to, this time I'm insuring my house for way more than I, you know, insured it before. And how much is that going to cost? And you know, what, I mean, every place is different, but, you know, exclusions or, you know, stuff should I be looking out for? And that's what we were talking about in the roadmap of preparedness. But we've, you know, and Amy can address this, but 
we've also done some preparedness stuff in regards to like mitigation and fire hardening and they have a program in california around that um we don't have it here yet but um so i it's like she was saying i think it's i mean i haven't only been here for a year but it's morphed into a lot bigger stuff than it was and it's not just insurance yeah yeah and also as lisa was saying i mean i think um well first of all we we've always used lessons that wildfire survivors learn the hard way in our preparedness tips right like don't blindly trust that your insurer has your home adequately insured right that message we've been putting out there for for decades do an inventory in advance so that you don't have to start from scratch right just take your phone out right so we've been saying those things but now in ever since um we've seen this confluence of predictive analytics drone imagery risk scoring you know um plus climate change plus inflation plus some instability in the stock market financial you know the we've had to do more and more and more work on mitigation because insurers are pulling back more and more and more from areas where there have been wildfires and floods and and so in order to bring them back so that homeowners have options again we are we've been heavily focused on promoting and facilitating wildfire risk reduction as well as flood risk um, reduction and hurricane risk and all that but you know we're still a small organization so we do a lot with partners we have a lot of um, partners all over the country yeah are is um united policyholders partnering with uh, ibhs and the fortified and um wildfire prepared programs yes as a matter of fact i think we actually deserve some credit for um for expediting their um their work in that regard because um when we started um focusing on how do we speed up the number of homes and communities that have have mitigated that have created defensible space and hardened their homes we we quickly realized that there really wasn't like an official standard um and there really wasn't a a program in place anywhere that was mm -hmm. successfully doing the work for people except for one little tiny program in boulder wildfire partners that was the only model and we and 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 there weren't really scientists hadn't really agreed and IVHS had been doing great work on in their testing facilities on with um with subjecting mm -hmm. uh, model homes to wind forces and and yeah. and I think they had just started we were way behind on what you can do to prevent a home from burning so I think we brought them into a working group that we were running they and I think um and we were we were loud and pushy and they i feel like when they unveiled their wildfire prepared home um designation united policyholders working group was a was a big factor in kind of keeping that thing moving um and now we're we're trying to help them um we want them to kind of loosen up a little bit on the five feet because um uh it's been very very hard for homeowners to get the designation uh yeah. because strictly requiring there be nothing yeah so that's a five feet boundary uh that is a hardscape that uh embers and whatnot won't uh, ignite um 
just for listeners, um, if you're interested in learning more about the Fortified program or the Wildfire Prepared Home program, uh, I did episodes with them. You can search uh, in the Build Tank uh, Buildcast uh, for those episodes. Um, interesting to me is that IBHS is an insurance industry-based organization, and there seems to be this big disconnect between the insurance industry and their their research uh, and whatnot. So um, why do you think that's the case? And why do you think that they their software that is calculating the cost of reconstruction is so widely inaccurate um, when they're doing this research and they, they have access to actual cost of construction because they're, they're building full-size scaled houses and burning them and subjecting them to wind and whatnot. Yeah, um, I think that, well, for one thing, insurers have always been great at finding excuses to increase their rates, right? They, they you know, um, every time there's been a disaster, you can always predict that the rates are going to go up in that area. Okay. But um, getting them to decrease their rates has typically been much, much harder. And so here in California, um, we had to do, we, we, we thought at first I thought, oh, USAA is giving people a 5% discount. Great. Let's trumpet that. Let's hold them up as an example of what a, a good insurance company can do, right? Um, and we thought other insurers would kind of follow suit. We were sort of thinking like 5% is not really enough of a discount to really matter, but it's something, it's a start and it was voluntary, right? But because other insurers were not really getting on the bandwagon and we also kind of wanted to see um, more than 5%, um, then the Department of Insurance here opened up this whole proceeding and then they, we did these regulations right now. Let me just let me just cut to the chase. Insurance companies like to see data and they like to see a lot of it. And the fact of the matter is what we need is for a fire safe community with firewise with active firewise council and an active fire department with wildfire mitigation specialists that are going out, giving the prescription, doing the work. We have to see a community like that survive a wildfire then i think things the, the insurers will will say okay and and i'm not saying it's right or wrong obviously i feel like they are behind right we keep on saying yeah. come on we know that these measures are going to make they're going to make a difference we know it but but they just keep saying they keep they keep putting up excuses like first they said that um that it has to be actuarially justified, right? We're not going to give some random arbitrary discount. Then they said, it doesn't matter if one house has mitigated, if their neighbor hasn't done anything, that house is still going to burn. So now we're, everybody's focusing on community level and all yeah. that. I think where we are now is like, okay, insurers, now what's your excuse, right? Because really, like, if if your customers are doing their part and people are are reducing risk, and people are building back more resilient and communities are, and there's all these dollars going in. Now you guys need to need to get on the bandwagon with us here and, and recognize it and participate by incent, by giving people not just a discount, 
but some, but renewal guarantee, like say, you know, one of the things that I love about Wildfire Partners, even though they wouldn't say it was a guarantee, but they said, they said that of all the insurers that have participated in their program, none of their graduates have been non-renewed. That was a while ago. I don't know if that's still true, but that's what they said. So in the mm-hmm. so you know, those are the two rewards we're looking for is discounts, but also don't drop them. Okay. And Wildfire Partners is based out of um, California or Lisa, Lisa Boulder. 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 Okay. They're in the county. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, we'll and they're to... the ones that we're trying to get to come out here to the eastern plains of the county, which is a work okay. in progress. And yeah. and you know, I have to say, in their defense, um, apparently it's very expensive because they. And that's everybody's trying to figure that out, right? How much should a wildfire mitigation retrofit cost? Their program got they had it had like like a forty five million dollar federal grant, and they still have only been able to complete I don't know, Lisa, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but but mm, you know less than twenty thousand. I pre, I'm almost yeah. positive. So it's well, still, and I think it's. Uh, the bulk of their work, if I'm not mistaken, is in the foothills, uh, yes, in the correct. traditional uh, pine tree um, wildfire mitigation scenario. So it's it's very different uh, mitigation here on the plains exactly. uh, where the Marshall Fire happened. But Lisa, maybe you have an idea um, why uh, fire resiliency doesn't seem to be on top of mind uh, for builders um and and actually the homeowners who are rebuilding uh in the marshall fire oh uh i know we don't have all day but okay um (laughs) i'll try to keep my keep this in my professional opinion um (laughs) rather than my personal opinion but um you can mix and match well okay let me just start by saying that and this kind of alludes to what we were talking about, about wildfire partners and et cetera. And this, some of this is my own opinion, but prior to this, at least in Boulder County, there has never been a fire in suburbia of yeah. this nature. And I don't think people expected it. They don't know how to, you know, and there's a confluence of things. I mean, open space not being mitigated, homeowners in 30 year old homes that didn't know what they were supposed to be doing, including me you know, et cetera. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think, well, okay, so you were asking why do I think that people aren't doing yeah. it? And then what was the second half of the well, question? Well, I, yeah, I think uh, to your point, it, it to me, it seems like it's analogous to the 100-year flood. You know, we think right. this is a 100-year fire. It's not going to happen again. And right. so it's not top of mind. Uh, but I, think, I was curious if you thought there were any other reasons why. Yeah, well, okay. I, w- I would say that it's becoming less people thinking that it was a hundred year thing than it was before. Yeah. Um, and I'll just use my neighborhood as an example. But, you know, I'm in Louisville and originally a lot of people weren't going to rebuild back. What do you want to call it? Mitigated, fire safe, whatever, because there's this perception out there. And part of this goes back to IBHS and stuff that we were talking about, that it's a lot more expensive to do it. And in some ways it is, but in some ways it's not. 
And then, you know, Boulder County and the state and stuff came up with all these incentives, right? And once people started hearing about that, they said, oh, gee, I think I can build to 2021 code, you know, energy code, and I can do some of these changes and still rebuild a house. And, you know, now the state is giving money for mitigation too. So I think that that message though, took a long time, like maybe a year or more. And what are we 20 months out or something? Yes. Eight, 19. So, I mean, that message I think took a while, but people are getting it. And I can tell you that there are survivors in this community working extremely hard without a lot of support from the government, from the county, from whoever, Joe Blow, (laughs) um, trying to get this message to our neighbors that it is extremely important and that, like you were talking about before, what you do as a community affects everybody and it affects, you know, I'll just use Louisville as an example. So only the Western half burned, but if the winds hadn't shifted, it's potential that all of Louisville could have gone down and same with Superior. And I don't think people understand that. And so I think, you know, that message through the work of many survivors in this community um, in all three jurisdictions is finally slowly starting to make sense. And people are like, oh, maybe I should be thinking about this. And we, you know, have also been working with the city, the county, everybody to everybody needs to come together to do it. It's not just the survivors banging our heads against a wall saying you need to do this, right? I mean, it's gotta be the people that weren't affected too in all of the places. So, um, but in terms of the people not building back fire safe, I think it's a mixture. I mean, most of the people I know actually are trying to do it personally, and they're trying to do as much as they can with the amount of insurance they have. But again, you know, if they don't qualify for, whatever funding is out there and they're significantly underinsured, you know, they may not be able to do it. I mean, and some people are doing some stuff and not other things because they can't afford to do, you know, the list of 10 things or whatever it is that I guess it's really seven are really important that everybody, you know, is, yeah, they, yeah. that you should be doing basically. And IBHS, and as you know, Robbie and Smart Home America were just here, you know, and that's, and with Wildfire Partners and other stuff. And that's one of the things we've, I personally, as well as my friends and neighbors have been pushing is really that there's no messaging. Somebody needs to take the responsibility to get that messaging out in a large way to people. And it's not, should not be my job as a survivor to do that. It should be, I don't know whose job. But, and that is the part that's not happening. And I think if it were happening to Amy's point, it would pull in, you know, whoever, insurance, everybody else and get people on the same page to really do it. And I mean, there is going to be a fire again. It's just a question of when. Yeah. Yeah. It's too bad that there couldn't have been an incentive, a rebate in the same way that there are these energy rebates uh, for fire resiliency, but there's not an organization that has um, the same kind of um, economic interest in it, I guess, uh, as Excel Energy does with regards to energy. uh, Right, well, I mean, there was was a bill passed in the legislature last session that is giving $5,000 for people to retrofit their houses. But again, it has some stipulations and it wasn't very much money around low income. 
and the other mitigation money is income qualified so it's not it's not um, not all of it not all of it is income qualified from the state yeah i think just some all of it is. that five thousand i believe but it, either way yeah. um it kind of brings us back to this loop of insurance and um my question is with regards to being underinsured um why are people underinsured is it is it i think there is an argument to potentially be made that it's it's our own fault but it's also the insurer's in fault uh, because we obviously want to pay the least amount possible for our policy um, but we probably really have no true understanding what the policy actually means and and is covering so from from your both of your perspective why do you think people are underinsured well i mean uh number one is um that it, we have it's it's sort of a, it's, it's kind of a vicious cycle right people assume it's logical that that an insurance company wants to sell me more than I need, right? That's just a natural, you know, you think, well, they're just trying to upsell me, right? So there's that. Number two, um, so so people, there's this, this counterintuitive, you know, the idea that actually they are limiting their exposure, right? Number two, the case law for decades has protected insurance companies and their agents. The case law is very hard to prove that, that you reasonably relied on your insurance agent and your insurer to do that calculation. And for some reason, the courts have been protecting insurers. I think it's, I sometimes think it's a little bit similar to, to like what they did with COVID business interruption. I think the courts worry that if they were to hold an insurance company responsible for, for recommending the adequate limits um that that would create some infinite liability and, and everybody would be suing i don't know but what i know is that so there that 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 insurers are gambling that you're not going to have a total loss so they're trying to give you the price they think you will pay and they're gambling that they know they know i mean we've been doing surveys now for decades yeah Every single wildfire, two thirds or more of the people have been underinsured, right? Insurance, and they, I mean, I present on this all the time in front of insurance regulators all over the country. Now there's like academics looking at it and still, they still use these flawed formulas, which are kind of a feedback loop. They, they lowball the, they lowball the, the rebuild estimate and then they put that those lowball numbers into the algorithm and then it just kind of keeps going. And again, because because the courts are protecting insurers, it ends up often getting the responsibility gets dumped back on the homeowner when the homeowner had no idea it was their job, right? The homeowner just thinks, well, I don't know anything about insurance and I'm paying this agent a commission. So he or she best be doing something, right? They're the middleman and I don't speak insurance. So we just rely on the expertise of the of the insurance industry that totally understandable and normal. Like I, I mean, you know, so um, so that's the problem. And and also, you know, I think um, to get to your earlier question, um, there is sort of a 
way that human beings get through the the world by not thinking about things that are scary and sad. So for example, in California, you know, 90%, 94% of the homes have no earthquake insurance, even though we know that there's a really good chance, you know, that there's going to be an earthquake. And so similar, I think a lot of people just kind of built or just want to build back and they they're on a tight budget and they want to get back home and they're just not really, they don't, it's hard to kind of, unless there's something that makes it easy for you to incorporate resiliency measures in your rebuild, they're not going to think about it, right? They're just trying to get back home, right, Lisa? Yeah. Kind of, well, yeah, yeah, and I think that um, in the suburban area, the the likelihood that there's a fire is small, so I'm not thinking about full replacement value uh, of my house. So that's kind of the, the part that's on us as consumers, but um, it seems like there's some due diligence that the insurance companies should have um, that also, and I guess use numbers that, that actually make sense to, to mm -hmm. estimate what the cost of, of reconstruction would be in, in the event that that did, did happen uh, so that you can make rational decisions. Uh, well, that's off. right. Consumers, there's like they're not getting the information, right? They get, they think that that the premium they're paying is adequate, and they don't have a reason to think it's not, unless they've read some article, you know, or they know somebody who went through a total loss. Most people in their lives will never, thank goodness, suffer a total loss, and yeah. so that's when underinsurance rears its ugly head. If you have a kitchen fire, like the kind type of most claims people have, you know, a theft, a kitchen fire, tree falls, you're not going to be underinsured for those type of losses. It's only when everything's gone, that's when the policy comes up short. And yeah, we've been trying to pin the responsibility on insurers now for decades with very limited success, and which we've gone into the legislature in Colorado and tried, um, you know, to, um, to put that duty squarely on the insurer to recommend adequate limits, and it doesn't fly politically. Uh, why do you think that's the case? Because, because, because the insurers like it the way it is. Yeah. And they have and they a have... lot of paid lobbyists. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to wrap up, uh, what's happening in, uh, the Marshall Fire area currently with uh, with your relationship with United policyholders. Mine. What do you guys What are you guys What are you guys doing uh, with the the public at at this point? You know, we're two uh, We're two years in. Is well, it still, still lots of education? Yeah, we're redoing our um, what do you want to call it? Our roadmap to recovery webinar series about building. We actually have one coming up on Wednesday. Um, about the mechanics of rebuilding. And we did those last year too, but we're doing them again. And we have some like new experts and stuff. So this is the, I think third or fourth one we've redone. Correct me if I'm wrong, Amy. Um, so we're doing that. Um, we still have, you know, our Marshall Fire Library up on the website that people can access. Um, people are still joining our Survivor to Survivor Forum, which is a monthly like sort of like support group. I mean, we're not therapists, but for fire survivors. 
Um, I mean, I'm on the long-term recovery group for the fire. Um, so yeah, we're still, we're distributing our carts through Colorado for if there is, God forbid, another disaster, we'll have like carts for our volunteers to take out to a local assistance center. Wow. Um, yeah. So yeah, we're still doing that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously there's no disaster assistance center anymore. <laughs> there hasn't been for what, a year and a half or something. But um, so, but yeah, we're still doing that type of stuff. And we're still getting questions from people. We've been doing a lot of stuff more recently and Annie's not here to speak to this, but um, in the smoke damage realm um, yeah. and trying to help a lot of the smoke damage survivors, which is a whole nother story. Um, but as you may know, there were a significant number of homes that had significant smoke damage in the Marshall Fire. Yeah. And without uh, nearly the same level of resources Correct. Uh, that when someone lost their home. Correct. So, and, yeah, yeah, there's a group of people that have smoke damage survivors that have been really active that, to get yeah. their needs met that, yeah. you know, we've been helping and stuff. So. And That's then great. looking ahead, you know, last week Lisa reminded me, well, people... Um, there's going to be people that are not going to be able to move, have moved back in by the, by the, by the second anniversary. And a lot of people's um, insurance benefits for their temporary rent are going to expire. And so she reminded me that we need to ask the commissioner to, to make an ask. I mean, it's, he, he can't um, compel insurers to alter the terms of their contract, but he can ask them to be flexible and recognize that, there are often circumstances beyond people's control that made it hard for them, you know, whether it was um, delays in getting a permit or they could, you know, their builder went belly up or they, or they had COVID or, you know, there's just a lot of reasons why people yeah. um, may not have be making the progress that they thought they would and are going to need more temporary rent benefits after January one. And so, um, we did make that ask to the commissioner and, um, and, you know, again, we, we try to, we try to anticipate problems in addition to addressing the ones that have already come up. Yeah. And we're also hoping to yeah. up our preparedness game a little bit here in Colorado too. So more presentations about, you know, how to get insurance and how to keep it and that type of stuff. Perfect. Perfect. Um, so to, to end on, I, I know that, uh, Boulder County and, uh, some in, the state's uh, energy office are thinking about lessons learned and how to be prepared. Because like you said, uh, it's not that there won't be another fire. It's kind of when when there will be another fire. Um, so what kind of lessons learned uh, would you want to impart to people listening? I'm assuming you're asking me this. <laughs> both, both, both of you. Oh, OK. Well, I would just say, make sure you read your insurance policy and you know what it says and you have some kind of idea of the rebuild costs in your area and whether you think you have enough insurance for you and what you're comfortable with because you never know when you're gonna need it. Um, yeah. I think- You'll probably sit down with your agent and go yes. over that policy. Yes, correct. Yeah, we did that. We did that. Uh, yeah, and I think- you know, part of that is, and I heard this on an article talking about, Amy was talking about people get their information from articles the other day, you know, is that people need to realize that they're going to be paying more for their insurance and they need to think of it like in their budgeting, like they budget for anything else, right? Your mortgage or whatever, like 
it's something you need to plan for and like be willing. I mean, if you're willing to increase your coverage, it's going to probably increase your premium, not necessarily, but it may be. And so I think until, you know, some point someday when hopefully all these rebuilt houses are fire safe and we're getting discounts, but that's not happening in Colorado currently. So yeah, um, yeah. lessons learned. Yeah, I think that's the main one. And I think some of the stuff Amy said at the beginning about Oh, that's another thing I was going to say. Make sure you inventory your stuff now before the fire. I have now, I have all of it on my phone now. Yeah. Take a picture. It takes 10 minutes. Take a video of everything you own. Open the drawers, do your garage, like everything. And so that you'll have it when you need it because it will save you an extraordinary amount of time and stress. Great. Those are probably the main two. And Amy, do you have anything to add? Lisa really captured it, I think, the essence. And the only other thing I'd say is, you know, go to our website, uphelp.org, and you can go to the, the Get Prepared tab. And 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 basically, I think, you know, just kind of what, what she was saying is, like, think about your insurance before you have a loss. Know where the policy is and, 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 know, and, and know how important it is to fine-tune it to your specific situation, right? right. There's a really big difference between agents, you know, different agents. Some of them are super like, you know, uh, passive and they don't make recommendations. You know, it's really yep. to work with one that's very that's proactive and so and looks at your policy with you and says, oh, you know, I think um, I think that you you're a little low here. You need building code upgrade coverage or you're, you know, so working with a good agent is a really, really important. Yeah, that's what I was, was going to say. And don't be afraid to shop around agents. If you, I mean, you know, you might have a relationship with your current agent, but that doesn't mean there's not someone out there else who, yeah. you know, might help you more. <laughs> you, you might not be able to, person. you yeah. might not be able to say, but um, is there, significant difference between different insurance companies uh, would you, would you say one is better than the other or they say that one of the most important i mean there's two factors that really determine usually what kind of experience you have with your insurance company on a on a large or total loss claim one is the personality of the adjuster or adjusters that that you have to deal with and how how long they've been with the company and whether they really know their stuff or they're green, or they're hostile, burnt out, whatever. And the other is the policy. You know, every policy is 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 they're not all different, but they, you know, they your policy is likely different from your neighbors in some way, right? Yeah. So it's it's the adjuster and the quality of the product that the insurer has sold you, and those two things vary quite a bit, which is why we say. We're here to empower the insured because all you can do is try to be proactive and, and informed and be the squeaky wheel who gets paid. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I keep saying this is the last question, but uh, this should be a simple one. Uh, we bought a fireproof safe uh, to put those documents <laughs> in. Do they work? No. No. Okay. No. <laughs> well, I can tell you from my experience, no. I lost every That's my fireproof safe and everything in it. Okay. So my advice to you would be digitize your documents and keep them in a safe place 
or put them, God forbid, in like a safe deposit box and hope that that bank doesn't burn down. But if it does, it's all metal. So maybe at least your safe deposit box will be safe, right? Um, because yes, it was extremely um, stressful, but you know, Nagoose and other people were really helpful, but in replacing documents, yeah, vital documents. Yeah. Um, I now have Congress representative offsite. What? I was just saying, uh, Joseph Nagoose is our congressional representative. Right, correct. His office has been extremely helpful with that, and the county was too. But no, I don't rely on a fire safe box. That's my other piece of advice. Okay. I mean, well, thank you. Was great. It was small, but you know. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate uh, your willingness to speak on this subject. I know it it's, uh, it could could be difficult, and I, I appreciate your honesty and openness uh, with that, Lisa. And and thank you, Amy, for uh, telling us more about United Policyholders. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Robbie. Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast, brought to you by BuildTank, Inc. To see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website at www.btankinc.com. Thank you, Ben Sound, for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it. And you, for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast. You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. If you enjoyed our show and are willing, please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast, which will help others find it more easily. Thanks again for listening, and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.